Mercy trumps judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you look in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that theme surface over and over and over again. In fact, it's articulated in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes that blessed are the merciful for they will inherit mercy or grant it mercy. James says in James chapter 2 that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is what we're supposed to give to people. Sometimes it's difficult for us to extend mercy because we're more apt to be critical in a moment regarding someone than we are to extend them mercy. Let me just say it this way. Have you ever changed your mind about someone? Has there, have you ever like, after you got a first impression like months, weeks, years later and thought, you know what, I was off on that person. I, my first impression wasn't a good one. The little snapshot I got of them wasn't the full picture of them. Have you ever changed your mind? Have you ever come back and even went to someone and said, you know, when I first met you, what I got, I didn't really like. And it's my fault. I didn't know the full story. I didn't know the full scope of your life. I didn't, didn't understand you. I just got these snippets and I, I, I collected this picture, this, this, this collage, and I, I fabricated this person that really wasn't the person that I thought you would. And after reevaluating and God changing my heart, I've changed my opinion about you. The truth is this, sometimes we just get little snapshots of people. You walked in today, every one of you walked in, bringing something from this week, bringing something from this year, bringing something from your past. You walked in and not everyone knows what that is. In fact, we just see a little snapshot of you on Sunday morning and yet you might have walked in here and you just, your child might have just run away from the Lord. You might have just been diagnosed or someone in your family with stage four cancer. You might have just had this sickness come upon you that no one knows about yet. You and your wife might be on the outskirts. You might have just gotten divorced. You might have just this. You might have just that. And so you walk into this morning, this moment. You're in here today, and all we see is this face. And so if we were to judge you or make a characterization of you with what we see right now, truth is, we're not getting the full story. And sometimes... When you don't know the full story, you wrongly characterize people because you don't know the full story. Today, we're going to look at a person I believe we need to see the full story. But when you get the full picture of why someone says something, you begin to understand them better. And I'm going to attest today that we leave today giving people the benefit of the doubt, knowing that There might be more to what they said. There might be more to what we saw. There might be more to that person because all we saw was one little piece. And sometimes it's just a a small frame, but there's so much more to that person going on. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at this.
often when you get the full picture, you begin to respond differently to someone. When you know they've had that kind of week, it changes your view of them. And often we are guilty of of freeze-framing people from a snapshot we saw of them in their worst moment. Like, well, I saw them and they did this. And because they did this, then they're like that. And because they did that, then they're these kind of people. Yet what happens when we get the full view of their life? Often it reshapes and reframes our thinking about them. In fact, we assume a lot of things about people. But let me just say this. Assumption is the lowest form of knowledge. When we assume something without all the facts, we make an assumption. And our assumptions can be wrong about people. Based on a few conversations, secondhand information, can, for some of us, become creed about a person. We live in a world where individuals will cut and paste conversations about people to build their cause about them. We form opinions about people by the way they dress, whether or not they have tattoos. Looking at their children, we say, oh, you see their children. They must be this kind of parent. We make observations. We, we freeze frame people based upon Facebook posts. We, we do it with whether or not they drink coffee, Mountain Dew, Diet Coke, or beer. We do it based upon a decision they made, based upon whether they're gun owners or not gun owners, whether they wear blue or pink or yellow. We make these decisions based upon these snapshots without having the full story. And then if we're not careful, we begin to judge them as a result of it. Well, I know what kind of person that person is. I have watched people write some of the most horrible things about people they've never had one conversation with. Never had a face-to-face with them. Bordering on gossip and slander, butchering character. Trying to justify a righteous act and painting them in a way that's totally sinful. So what do you do with that? What do you do when, when you've been falsely characterized? When, when someone comes into your life and says, hey, let me tell you about this. Well, I'm going to go on this journey today and tell you about a woman that I think has been framed improperly has been characterized for over 2,000 years unjustly, who said 10 words. 10 words is all she spoke in Scripture. And we have characterized, we have painted this picture based upon a very difficult moment in her life when she had a microphone jammed in her face and she spoke 10 words. And then we say, well, that's the kind of woman this is. In fact, Some of you know this woman. She's not even named in scripture. She wasn't even given a name. She's just the wife of someone. I'll ask you, for those of you who have a church background or or know a little about this story, when you think of the name Job, what comes to mind? What are some things, like I gotta go to the book of Job because he lost this, he lost that, he lost them, he lost those, he lost everything, and he faithfully praised God. Job gets elevated But what about Job's wife? What comes to mind when you think of Job's wife? What picture? What thought? Just something like this. Well, she's a fair-weathered Christian. She was like, she 
when things got rough and everything was taken away, she didn't really love God. She, she kind of ran from God. The only time she loved God was when, was when things were good, when there was meat on the table, money in the bank, and the kids were alive, and she had a house. That's how we characterize Job's wife. I'm going to suggest, I'm going to make a strong suggestion today. And I'm going to try to build a case that we're wrong about her. I'm going to build a case to say, we're probably wrong about a lot of other people too. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Job, and I'm going to show you why I believe that's true. If you need a Bible and you came to worship with us today, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, we use them today. If you need a Bible, take this Bible home with you. It's a gift from Grace Community Church. But turn to Job. If you don't know where Job is at, go to Psalms and turn left. You'll be right there. It's the next book. Job chapter 1. Turn to Job chapter 1, and we're going to read from Job chapter 1. Stand with me, and we'll read this together. Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. Let's read this out loud together. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man of all the people of the East. You may have a seat. This guy's got everything. <laughs> he gets written as the greatest man of the East. He's got food. He has plenty of it. He's wealthy. He's got a big home. He's got 10 kids. He's and, and he's a man of integrity, he's blameless and upright. So when we read this, we realize that this man was a faithful man of God. Yet, his wife is never mentioned. But let me say this. Behind every faithful, godly, blameless, upright man is a woman who's godly and faithful behind him. There's no way that he could be blameless. There's no way he would be the greatest man of the East if a godly woman wasn't by his side. So what's not said about Job's wife is just as important as what is said about Job. Also, when you look at this first book, the first three verses, is Job's wife even mentioned there? Is she? She's not mentioned. They talk about the kids, talk about the house, talk about the camels. Why not Job's wife? I want you to hold on to that thought because I think it's critical in building this case that this woman has been falsely judged, characterized for a couple thousand plus years. And I'm going to, to attest today that I think that we need to revisit who Job's wife is. Start there for a moment. Behind every great man is normally a great godly woman. So if we do what most have done with Job's wife, we could look at the text and say, there's nothing that incriminates her from chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That there was, as best as we know, she's a faithful woman, and if she wasn't, it would have been mentioned. But keep in mind, now hold on to this, that she's never mentioned. Same author wrote this same book. She's never mentioned by name in the first three verses of the introduction. Her kids are... Job is, a camel is, a donkey is, but Job's wife isn't. And it appeared that everything was going well for her and for Job. He was wealthy. He was respected. He had tons of servants. He was the greatest man in the East. They had a nice place to call home. Job's wife had all the amenities that a wealthy person would have. 
Can we at least stop and say this? Can we agree? Boy, we ought to cheer this family on. Faithful, faithful wife, faithful husband. Many people spend their entire lives living faithful lives yet receive little fanfare. Let me just pause away and say this. What would happen if we began to encourage Christ followers who were faithful for three weeks, for six weeks, for 10 weeks, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, and 40 years, and 50 years? And along the way, just cheer them on, say, man, I am encouraged that you're following hard after Jesus. What would happen if that became the fabric of our DNA where we were more cheerleaders than we were judges of people? What would happen if that came out of us as the natural as we walk, as we walk, that regularly we would just cheer people on instead of waiting until they do something that's out of character, that's done in a moment of pain or grief, that is far away from God, and then come right in and judge them. What would happen if we were more apt to encourage and cheer than to judge? Well, I think, here's a classic example. What we know about Job and his wife is just as important as what we don't know about her. What we don't know is why wasn't anyone cheering her on? Why isn't there like the stop and say she was faithful? Why doesn't she get a moment that says she lived faithfully for many years? She had 10 kids. You know, if you have babies back to back to back to back, that's 10 years. I doubt at least for 10 to 15 years she lived a faithful life. When is the last time, by the way, just a little sidebar, that you sent someone a text and said, you know, I've been watching you for three years. I've been watching you for six weeks. I've been watching you. And, you know, I'm encouraged by your faith in Christ. I'm encouraged that, 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 that you're walking with God. When's the last time you took time to send a text, to, to write an email, or even to give a telephone call and say, I just want to let you know, any reason I'm calling is say, man, I'm encouraged by your walk with God. Instead of waiting until they fall and then point out their fault. Everything would change for Job's wife in a moment of time until she had a moment in time where everything fell apart. Look what happens to her quickly. She's faithful. We should be cheering her on. We don't get any recollection of that. Now look at chapter one and verse six. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and obviously his wife and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Then it says this, one day, it should say one miserable day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Savians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. We should pause and say, this is bad news. 
Meanwhile, the text is this. While this guy was speaking, as if that wasn't bad enough, another messenger came out of breath, running. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one left who has escaped to tell you. It's like, as if it wasn't bad enough, now more animals die. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm, a, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this point, you want to see Job say, wait a minute, no more messengers. Don't want anybody else. Then it says this in verse 10, while he was still speaking. Yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with anything. Now, let me also say this. Job's wife got this information too. Just because it doesn't say it, just because it doesn't say what Job's wife got this information, she got the same information. So pause for a second. Pull away from what's going on here. Livestock, house, tornado, kids die. In a moment, in a matter of a day, total cataclysmic breakdown and loss. Now, imagine someone coming to you in that moment and sticking a microphone in your mouth and said, speak. And what we have recorded is this woman's words, fresh on the point of grief, Fresh in the moment of losing everything. And she speaks 10 words. 10 words. And these words we have characterized and said, this is the kind of woman she is. Her very worst day of her life. And she utters these words that we said, well, this is how she is. As if that wasn't bad enough, look what happens. Chapter 2 and verse 1. On another day or the next day or day soon after. The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason— Satan replied, skin for skin then. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Would you agree with me? This is a pretty horrible day. This isn't one you say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Imagine though, let's be really human here. This day sucks. It just does. It's, he's lost everything. And by the way, she has lost everything. Everything that's near and dear to her. 
And then she speaks these words. In a moment that we have just kind of just inscripturated forever, this is all we know. She only speaks these words. Job gets to speak 39 more chapters. Job's wife speaks 10 words. She says these words that we have characterized and frozen her and her character with these. Look at verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and what? She speaks 10 words on the heels of gut-wrenching heartache. She's been labeled as faithless and heartless. I beg to differ today about Job's wife. I beg and suggest that we revisit this woman. I suggest that we redeem her and her name. I choose today to take a hard look at this passage and again suggest that maybe we have unjustly judged this woman. I ask that we let mercy trump judgment. And that even for that matter, I ask that we begin to let mercy trump judging on many people in our lives. Pause and consider. Just for those of you who are parents, imagine your child dying and you, you went to the funeral. And fresh after that, after your child has died, your husband wakes up with boils on the, from the bottom of his heel to the top of his head. Now imagine this. He's in misery. He's in pain. You are in pain. He can't comfort you because he's got these seeping sores. He needs someone else besides the pottery in the ground to comfort him. Now picture 10 holes in the ground. Every single one of the kids that you've dreamt over, that you've prayed over, that you've blessed them before God, that you've given over, that you, you've had visions of them changing the world, that that you've coddled them and then changed their diaper, diapers and, and loved them unconditionally. Picture after coming out of the funeral of 10 services of 10 of your kids and someone asking you, hey, Job's wife, what you been thinking lately? And out of her mouth came these words that we have characterized her with. Now add to that, if you can. Add to that, she's homeless after having had the best of the best. All the livestock is dead, no income, her house is collapsed because of a tornado. The pride and joy of a wife, and they had no homeowner's insurance. And someone says, hey, how's your day going? Now, let me ask you, how would you like a microphone to be stuck in your mouth with the conversation that you had with your husband and your wife last night after you had a tiff between each other? And that's all that we ever heard. <laughs> this is this person. How would you like to have a Facebook YouTube video posted of you that you didn't even know you were at your son or daughter's baseball or basketball or football game and the ref or the umpire made a bad call against your son and someone was videotaping your expression? Imagine that being plastered across the airways and that's all we had about you in one of your finer moments. You see, what we have here, I believe, is a woman that was deeply, deeply in grief. Carrying loads and loads and loads of pain, physical exhaustion, loneliness. And the text says there was no one there that came to her. Now imagine someone sticking a microphone in her face when your husband wakes up with sores all over his body and asks you to speak. And then says, by the way, when you're done, I'm going to put this in the Bible for the next 3,000 years. 
So she says, are you maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. So that's all we have. And so it wasn't her finest moment. I'll agree with that. It wasn't like you would want to quote her and say, hey, this is how you walk with Jesus. Curse God and die. But I would pull away and say this. That's only one snapshot. That's not the full story. And I would go so far as to say this. When you make characterizations of people, your friends, your workers, your boss, your employees, your pastors, your neighbors, your cousins, when you make characterizations about them with not having walked in their shoes, are you truly, truly giving them the benefit of the doubt? I often say it this way. How often have you truly walked in the other person's shoes? You know, I see you on Sunday mornings and I see you on Wednesdays and I see you throughout the year in different venues. And so it'd be real easy for me and real easy for you to say, this is Jim Brown. This is who I know. And it'd be easy for me to say, this is the person you are. But listen, until you've walked in my shoes, until you've experienced what goes across my desk, what I deal with at home, the decisions that I have to make, until you walk the mile in my shoes, you aren't capable, nor am I capable of fully developing a picture of who that person is. Now, if you just took one snapshot of a person in their very worst moment after they lost 10 kids, lost their house, lost their home, and lost all their money, and you made an evaluation about that person or judged them, I would go so far as to say that you probably missed the mark about that person. Before you're quick to judge this woman without a name, walk him out in her shoes. Experience the depth of her grief and her broken heart. Yet, are we really any better than this? Ask yourself if you would like your response in the bedroom to be aired from this morning or last night. Or the words spoke, you spoke one morning after being up all night with the crying baby and it was your turn and the baby wouldn't sleep and you had to get up in the morning and go to work the next day and it was a Monday morning and your boss came after you that you already, he was already under your skin. He says, hey, how was your night? Get after it. Just have that first phrase of 10 words and say, there he is, there's Jimmy Brown. Can we give some benefit of the doubt and say, she had a really bad day. I'm not excusing what she said, but what I'm saying is, she was human. Or imagine waking up one day to a blog post where you were totally misquoted out of context by something that you said. I bet if we were really honest today, Many in this room want to say to Job's wife or whatever her name is, I totally get you, girl. I totally get you. There's moments where I'm very human like that too and it's not the best version of me and and I'm not making an excuse for it, but if that's all you see about me, if that's the only moment you see about me, then I'm a lot more like you than most would want to agree with. But somehow we have grown to not give mercy to people who respond in a real human way. And the best version of us is nowhere to be found. It's as if we're ready to jump on that person and say, I told you they weren't really who they said they were. I told you there had to be something else. They're just too good or they're just, they're just too happy all the time. 
or they just have too much faith. I told you. It's as if we're ready to pounce on this person as soon as they do something wrong instead of cheering them on when they're walking faithfully 99% of the time. I want to say to Job's wife, I'm sorry. I've been guilty of judging you. You see, if we spend as much time checking in and talking about Jesus as we spend time finding faults in other people, we would soon be the followers Jesus intended us to be. But we like watching people fail for some stupid reason. It's like, it makes us feel better if someone miserably falls. It's like, oh, that's that guy over there, or that's that church, or that's that family. There's, well, you just wait. It might take 47 years, but I'll be there to tell you. Where do we get that from? I'll tell you where we get it from. We get it from hell, from Satan. We should be the greatest cheerleaders for any Christian brother and sister in Christ as opposed to judges. Cheer them on instead of judging them on. Let's extend some grace and mercy to people who've had a bad day. This was not Job's wife's finest moment. And I suspect if she had to do it all over again, she would have responded differently if she knew that these 10 words would be inscripturated forever. At least they could have said, well, I just want to let you know before you say anything, um, Emanuensis, the secretary, is going to write this down. Thus saith the Lord. Have we moved so low that we're no more for what we are against than what we stand for? I know there are many things to stand against, yet what do we really stand for as Christians? Are we no more for what we hate and who we hate? I'm grieved by the hate levels I see in Christianity today. And I wonder what might happen if we bottled up that level of angst and used it against the real enemy, Satan himself, instead of each other. I'm reminded when I read in 2 Corinthians 1, and I want you to turn there, keep your finger in Job. I'm reminded that there are times that we're overwhelmed. I'm reminded that there's times when we think we can't go on, when there are 10 freshly dug graves, when we feel like we have a death sentence on us. I'm reminded when Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, Grace Community Church, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia or Elkhart County or, or Maryland or California or wherever you live. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to what? So that we despaired of what itself? Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of what? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let me just say this. The next time, and I've said this on many occasions, but you might not have heard this, and you need to hear it again. The next time a brother or sister of Christ comes to you and says, hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. Tell them that's a lie from the pit of hell. God does give us more than we can handle. 
Even to the point where we feel like the sentence of death is on our backs, where we are totally overwhelmed. And the reason is so that we turn to him and we need him. If we're never at a point of need, then who needs God? I'm convinced that Joe's wife was at this moment. Besides, nothing more is said of her other than her, her curse God and die moment. How come, how come Joe got 39 chapters to talk How come we didn't stop with chapter 3? Look what he said. Look at chapter 3. Look what Job says in chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth, insert microphone, and cursed the day of his birth. How come we don't stop there? Look, Look what else he says. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, oh, boy, is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. And you want to sniff say, anyone else got a good testimony? How come, it, how come it doesn't stop there? How come like, whoa, if, if that's all we had of Job, what would we say? Well, that man's faithless, that man's heartless. How come he gets 39 chapters to talk and Job's wife gets 10 words and never hear another word about her? I believe it's so that we can look at the text and say, there must have been more. Maybe, just maybe, I understand this woman now better because For most of our lives, my family and I have lived in a glass house. And every decision that I make is scrutinized and judged and quickly evaluated. Maybe I feel compassion for Job's wife because I am humbled by the way Jesus showed compassion when others were quick to judge. Even on the cross, Jesus looked down and says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. What? Yes, they do. They hung you on the cross. No, they don't know what they're, yeah, you want to, Jesus, come here. I want to talk with you a second. Your lies, they said this, they said that, and Jesus gave them compassion. He trumped judgment with mercy. Maybe I feel compassion because I have witnessed person after person unfairly characterized by someone who has never spoken a word to him or her face to face or taken the time to get to know the full story or walked in their shoes. By the way, when you throw dirt, you lose ground. And the next time someone throws dirt at you, just shake it off and let it build higher ground for you to stand on. Maybe I feel compassion, and you should too, because you and I are guilty of hoping for someone to fail so that we can say, I told you so. It was just too good to be true about them. Can I just say this? That's just plain evil from the pit of hell. You and I have both been on a receiving end of ungodly gossip and slander. And I want to say, walk in my shoes for one week, for one month, for 18 years. 
maybe I've been challenged by this message in a fresh way when I revisit the words of her husband. What did he say? Let's really look at it. Look at Job chapter 2 and verse 10. Let's rethink what he said. Let's revisit this. After she said in verse 9, are you still maintaining your integrity? Cursed I didn't die. He replied, you are talking like a what? What's he say? Foolish woman. It's Paul's. What he doesn't say in this case is more important than what he does say. He does not say, you are a foolish woman. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Then he says this, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this Job did not sin in what he had said. Maybe he was saying, let's rethink this. When he's looking at his wife, who's got the, the marks of grief, who has the black rings around her eyes from crying all night, the ten deaths of her children, who has just scraped the boils off his body, who's standing out in a tent because the house has been wiped out, who's standing at the city dump eating because they have no food, and he sees this woman that he loves and says, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Maybe, just maybe, he was saying, hey, honey, I know this isn't you talking. I know what you really believe. I know your heart, honey. Maybe, just maybe, he was comforting his wife and saying, I know you better than this, baby, but I know the grief is so heavy on your heart that the best version of yourself isn't surfacing, but I still know, baby, who you really are. She felt helpless, but she was not heartless. You know, what gets lost in this account is critical to me building this case today. Because she stood with her man until the end. <laughs> it's like she didn't get any credit for that. She's only mentioned one more time in the text. Turn to chapter 19 and look at verse 17. Chapter 19 and verse 17. There's only one more account of her in the whole story. 39 chapters after this. There's only one more reference to her. It's what every wife feels when her husband rolls over in the morning in the bed. This is what she wants to say to him. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. People who are a lot smarter than I am believe because of his disease that he had, these boils or this infection on his body, that he also had halitosis. And if you've ever smelled the breath of someone with halitosis, it's not something that you want to linger in much. So we know that, that, that she's there. Down the road, she's there. And then some would say, well, he made a covenant with his eyes in chapter 31 and not look lustfully at another woman. Doesn't every married man want to do that? <laughs> then at the end of the book, let's go to chapter 42, okay? Some like to say, well, she wasn't there at the end. I'll prove it. She wasn't there. She left him. Well, let's go and see what it says in chapter 42, verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in the house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. 
And by the way, does it say all the trouble that he brought on his wife? And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Like, finally his friends come back to him. Talk about fair weather. Verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. The second, Kezia. And the third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man full of years. And many people want to say, well, see, she wasn't there. She wasn't there at the end because she's never mentioned. I want to say, did we mention her in Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3? Same author, same style of writing, gets to the end, goes through the same list of children, goes through the same list of livestock, and nowhere is his wife's name mentioned. Let me throw this into the mix. God judges Job's three friends, but he never judges Job's wife. And why do you think that this? I believe because he saw her get back on her feet. And guess what? I believe she stood with her man to the end when everyone else ran away. Maybe she had one bad day like you and I do. And we've misunderstood and unjustly characterized her. Come on, church. Ten kids? Job's wife didn't always have the right words. In fact, she only had ten words. And sometimes the circumstances overwhelmed her. But doggone it, she was there with her man in the end. And that should mean something, shouldn't it? Somehow, some way, she recovered from this gut-wrenching ordeal to give birth to ten children and stand by her man. I feel like God wants this message to be spoken today. That we are too quick to judge people. We're too quick to give advice about how we would do it. When we don't have the full picture, when we haven't walked in another person's shoes. And in doing so, we have slandered, gossiped, and butchered the character of a brother or sister in Christ. It's just sinful, church. What might happen if we chose to give people the benefit of the doubt instead of believing the worst about them? Before you're quick to judge or nail a person to the wall, walk in their shoes for one week, for two years, for 30 years. It's time to drop the rocks, Grace Community Church. As a result of this study, I believe God gave me these words. And I want to read them to you. They were out of the context of this study, and I posted them on social media And this is what God gave me. What if our words about others were laced with compassion and grace? What if the need to prove someone else wrong was overrided with love and understanding? What if gossip and the need to talk about someone was replaced with a word of encouragement and prayer for success for that individual?
What if the time spent evaluating the weakness and failures of someone else was spent on our knees asking God to evaluate our own shortfalls? What if we truly love one another enough to become their greatest cheerleader and supporter until they breathe their last breath? Well, the world would run to Jesus in droves and Christians would truly begin to love one another more than they love themselves. In this case, 10 freshly dug graves, a house wiped off its foundation, a husband stricken with disease from the bottoms of his feet to the top of his head. So horribly so that friends stood beside him for seven days bowing down because they were in pity for him. Shouldn't mercy trump judgment? My Bible tells me this, that there's also another side to our God that says this. It's because of his kindness that people are led to repentance. Can we all say that we're human and some days we're not the very best version of ourselves? Can we give Job's wife a whole pass of compassion and mercy? This is one bad snapshot of a faithful woman who was standing by her man and loving her God at the end. Job was faithful and gets plenty of accolades. I'm suggesting that Job's wife needs some too. What if, what if this would happen in the Church of America? What if we began to cheer each other on and wish the best for them? Instead of waiting for, I told you so. Yesterday, I listened to an interview of two fight club men. Deeply encouraged my heart. God knew I needed that. It was an interview that was broadcast on Calvary Radio Network. Twelve men, our last chapter, drove from Valparaiso, Indiana, to join our fight club with hopes of that they would become the next squadron leaders of, a, of a, a chapter that starts in Valparaiso. And by the way, they're starting one, and they hope to get 150 to 200 men there. But they interviewed these two men on the radio, and I sat in tears as I listened to this interview. They told them, they asked them how Fight Club had changed their lives and how it impacted them. So it was just affirming to hear that. Sometimes you just need to hear it. And as I listened to this story, one of the guys, Eric Matheson and Vinny, were talking about driving from Valparaiso, Indiana, coming to Goshen at night, at midnight. And they said, what was that like to drive into a parking lot of hundreds of cars, 300 cars, on a midnight, coming at midnight? And they said, number one, it was just, it was just we, we were blown away that this many men wanted to come out at midnight. <laughs> But then he said this, there was one of our guys that was part of our group that shared this with us after we left. That evening, as men entered the building, we had a, a men on both sides. We, we created this chute, this path for men to walk through. We had all the original Fight Club grads, men who had graduated three chapters, standing face to face to each other, making a pathway to, for men. As soon as they came in the door, we cheered them on. We whistled, we gave them high fives, we slapped them on the butt. It was like, it was like, welcome to Fight Club! 
It was awesome. These guys were walk, walking in and they didn't know what to do. Some had, had never experienced anyone doing something like that. And then Vinny and Eric shared this story. He said, we were driving home and one of the guys piped up that was with us and he said, you know, I'm an adult grown man and I've lived all of my life and never been cheered by anybody. He said, that was the first time in my life that anyone ever cheered for me. Listen, if that's his story, how many more Christ followers need to be cheered instead of judged? God, I believe this is the message that you wanted me to speak today. I don't pretend that it's an easy one. And, but Jesus, all of us have either been on the receiving end or the giving end. I pray, God, that we stop characterizing people and judging them until we know the full story. I pray that we're givers of mercy instead of judgment. God, may there be a wave of cheerleaders and not judges at Grace Community. And may we be known for what we stand for, not what we stand against. God, we're encouraged knowing that you cheer us on. You tell us a great crowd of witnesses, cloud of witnesses that cheer us on from above. May we become the greatest supporters of brothers and sisters in Christ and cheer them on to faithfulness. And when we're all by ourselves, God, may we know that you are there forever reigning and we can run to your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.